you must not over-interpret what I say that has a political uh, sort, of, uh, sort of leaning to it. Because uh, uh, there is a risk that you might over-interpret what I say in terms of its politics and under-interpret what I say in terms of its religion. Because I'm mostly interested in re the religious aspect, the sort of Christian ideology in all of this, uh, and less so in the politics, even though that cannot be completely separated. So uh, I'm fearful that that we're under-interpreting the religious part and over-interpreting the political, uh, political aspect. So this kind of topic, <coughs> the kind of Adventism that brought me uh, into to, to life, <coughs> has a lot to do with the kinds of topics that we're doing here, uh, these four, four sessions on, on the cosmic conflict and, and, and uh, contemporary realities. And I just... I just sat down this morning thinking that it was five years ago that one of my first mentors in, in, in biblical areas, uh, he, he, he died. He was only 69 when he died five years ago. And, uh, and I just miss him because I miss having that kind of conversation with people. And I am grateful to you for, for uh, seeming to be interested in this topic. And, and, and uh, allowing us to to have that kind of conversation that that used to that I have thought was so meaningful. So I'm going to show you a picture of my mentor next time. Looking back at the topic we did last time, I would uh, again not not asking from you to agree with anything I said that had political ramifications, but just a framework, just to to see if one can can have a a, a certain um, a certain credibility in terms of the framework, uh, and uh, that is that that there is something to be said on the subject of economics, and the church has historically been insensitive to the plight of the poor and preferential to the interests of the rich. Evangelical Christians and the American political system favor the wealthy at the expense of the poor. I contended that that need not be completely agreed on, but it seems to me that there is a there is a a, a ideological and even theological uh, tendency in the U.S. that seems quite similar to what we have had in the, the church historically. And then I also said last time that the Sabbath in its original intent and eschatological role is not only a contest for another day, but for a different ideology. So there is a Sabbatarian uh, sort of uh, thinking there to the extent that you might say there is going to be a, what I call a confrontation of signs at the end of, of history, Sabbath and something else, then that cannot only be a confrontation of days. It has to be a confrontation of, of different ideologies, different ways of different priorities. And, and it seems to me that the Sabbath, the ideology of the Sabbath, as I proposed last time, is an ideology that looks out for the interests of the poor. The interests of the Sabbath are the interests of the poor. The enemies of the Sabbath are the enemies of the poor. I, I quoted someone to that effect. You might want to weigh in on this one before we go to today's topic, because we didn't get much to discuss it. Uh, so uh, so I, I, I would, but uh, I'm sort of hopeful that you don't want to discuss it. <laughs> yes.
when Ralph Reed was uh, directing the campaign for George Bush in Texas, in his run in Texas, uh, one of the platform things said that uh, all welfare should be given to the church and there should be a 10% tax and Social Security should be dispensed, and the Texas people voted for it. However, when it got to the national platform, of course that didn't make it, but in Texas it did make it, and so you, you have this kind of ignoring of the, the poor and well, you need not be uh, be uh, uncertain about where the church has placed itself historically, you know. And the rise of of of, of socialist communist ideology was partly because uh, had had a lot to do with with disenfranchised uh, that the poor had been disenfranchised. That that you know, like Marx Marxist ideology said that religion had become an op. You know, opium for the masses, meaning that that what what did society offer the poor? It offered them religion. It did not offer you know the any sort of redress in terms of of, of living condition. The church there it would would be uh, certainly the Roman Church, but it would also to some extent be. You could also do uh, say that there is a. Well, I'd say that that Protestantism has has in some ways lifted the or changed the framework for the poor. John Wesley, for example, did a lot to improve the lot of the poor. Methodism was very much invested in that. Well, that's important. You know, that's an important point that there has been that there has been uh, involvement to improve the lot of the poor uh, uh, through missions. I think that that that's true. Uh, and and I, I don't think that my claims for the types of societies we have structured, you know, Christianly structured, uh, should should negate that there has been been uh, missions that have actually ha- helped the poor quite a lot. In Peru, for example, even Adventist missions has been demonstrably effective in helping in helping uh, sort of balance the balance the. Uh, the, the inequities between the rich and the poor. So there, it needs to be nuanced. Uh, so we're we're focus. I'm focusing this uh, in in somewhat narrowly. I'm focusing it historically on on 1500 years or so of Christian history, and then to see what what where does the where where are the gravitational forces now in contemporary Christianity and and especially with with uh, an eye to America? You know the Sabbath initially is given, or the Sabbath not necessarily initially, but when when the Israelites leave Egypt, they come from slavery, and they this is a twenty four seven society. So the the offer the Sabbath offered to them is is a is a gift to the poor because they are all poor they're all destitute they're all enslaved they're the workers they are the Mexicans of their di- of their day in that society and God deliver uh, God God uh, uh, delivers them and gives them the Sabbath and then and then he structures the Sabbath in a kind of anti capitalist way because those who gathered much did not have access and those who gathered little had no lack there is an attenuation of the relationship between effort and output in the initial configuration of the sabbath so there must be something the sabbath the intent of the sabbath 
giving sort of mercy to the to the to those who are just working and toiling and wondering if they will make if they can make ends meet. That is a, that mercy uh, factor is there in the Sabbath, and then there is an an attenuation of the of that very predictable that trusted relationship between effort and output, that, which I think is conspicuous. And then you have the sabbatical year, where you have rest for the land, and you have the jubilee, where where ownership, where you cannot concentrate ownership of land because it is reset every 50 years there will be redistribution of land so the so which is another big big and central tenet of of a of a sort of runaway capitalist ideology that you can own as much as you want to whatever happens to to those at the bottom of the ladder but the topic today is not the sabbath uh, it, it's just i just wish to to say that i think that the there is a there is a uh, an economic aspect of, of the Sabbath. Let's say that we t- we tend to think in the Adventist community. We tend to say, well, the Sabbath is you know being obedient. You know, it is to show who is obedient to to this commandment. But the Sabbath was not primarily configured for the subject of obedience. It was primarily uh, configured for the needs of the poor. It was configured to a need to a real need and that is something that we as middle class middle class uh, people might not might not sense you know what is the yes of course we think we need it too but there are there the, the aspect of need is not conspicuous in our in our situation yes well that's that's right but the sabbath so the sabbath of creation what is the need there you know what's the need there because human beings come to the sabbath and we have not worked you know there is no there is not that kind of need there the need <coughs> the need there is probably most best seen as a need on the part of god wishing to commit himself wishing to commit to what god has created so uh, and 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 there is also then a sense that humans also need it that we need to reciprocate this, the text in genesis does not say that anyone should keep the sabbath it only says that god kept it you know it is to- totally a sort of narrated narrated structure so but then it the sabbath gets re its ideology gets developed its ideology is spelt out for for other other uh, types of realities and and in uh, in the gospel of john which i think is the most important sabbath text in the entire in the entire bible i have just uh, uh, finalized an article for the adventist review that they have said they liked that will come out in july on that subject on the sabbath in the gospel of john in the in the Gospel of John, the ideology of the Sabbath is not divine rest, but divine work. My father is working until now, and I am also working. So, so the Sabbath is constantly, constantly being configured, being sort of updated according to human need, and and that I think is is a is a is it, it, should, it must not be taken out of the equation the topic today in a series of reacceptances number 1 reacceptance of the church as state number 2 reacceptance of extreme economic inequities 
Number three, then, is re-acceptance of unaccountable authority. That's the subject today. And next time, I'd like us to talk about re-acceptance of the mother. So, <clears throat> the biblical perspective for today's topic, I wish we could talk about this text. I thought to myself this morning, I would worship Jesus if he had only said this. That would be enough for me. I would just fall on my knees and worship him all, all out for saying this thing only. Jesus answered. He's talking to, uh, to those who are interrogating him. Jesus answered uh, to the priestly interrogators. I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple. Where all the Jews come together, I have said nothing in secret. What's that? That's how accountable people do things. Transparently, openly. I have said what in secret? Nothing. In secret, I have said nothing. So there is, because if you're going to have, if you're going to have accountability, you have to have what? Transparency. You, have, you do not have accountability where you do not have transparency. And Jesus and God, because Jesus is merely reading from the script of the Old Testament here. This is God speaking in Isaiah 48, 16, and you will find other texts like it. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. there that's a kind of weak translation, but, but you get the idea. So, and you'd find other texts like it, and you should, you should, uh, you know, avail yourself of a uh, Bible study program that has good cross-references, that where you can easily see other texts like it, uh, a program like the one I have. I have Bible works, but there are simpler programs than that, that will do the same thing. Now, let me say that again. I could worship God for this reason only. And we need nothing else but, but that, to say that, that the divine authority, the Jesus authority, presents itself before the world transparent and inviting with its transparency accountability. See, uh, see what I'm saying? You, you, you're not awed. You don't want to go home now and meditate on that and do nothing else for the rest of the day. I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues, in the temple, where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. I mean, what more can you ask for? And there is more, of course, texts that you have loved in this community, uh, you know, servants. I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. But that's part of the same ideology. It's a part of the same, it, this is whole cloth, this kind of ideology on the part of Jesus. That's our biblical perspective for today's topic. Moving into historical realities, uh, we see that Christian authority, the way the Christian state authority constitutes itself, and the way the church authority co constitutes itself is not quite like that. Uh, so <clears throat> here is W.H.C. Uh, Friend 
who has written a wonderful book on the rise of Christianity, a, th a, a, a big book, a really thick book, but it's, it's a very nice, nice read. He says about uh, <coughs> the Constantinian Christianity, there could be only one orthodoxy. The ministers of the Supreme God would speak with one voice only. In practice, the ancient world had exchanged the guardianship of one set of divine masters. Notice the Roman emperors who appointed them. Who appointed the Roman emperors? God. They were emperors by divine right because emperors are not appointed from below. They are appointed from above. They have a mandate from above. So the ancient world had exchanged the guardianship of one set of divine masters, meaning the emperor, capricious but generally benevolent, for another that would brook no opposition. So, so, so how does imperial authority uh, configure itself in the post-Constantinian uh, era? More lenient, more sort of forgiving, more sort of uh, uh, magnanimous than, than the Roman emperors? Not according to friend. It's less so. It's less because the old masters, they were uh, capricious but generally benevolent. But the new ones, they want to get into your bedroom, literally speaking. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, but they, they, they are much more intrusive in matters of personal belief and conduct and so on. Lord Acton, whose book I have recommended a number of times now in his book, Essays on, on Freedom and Power, he says that, and he is writing as a Catholic historian, friend is not, uh, uh, is not, is writing more, I suppose, from a Protestant perspective. Constantine, in adopting their faith, the Christian faith, intended neither to abandon his predecessor's scheme of policy, nor to renounce the fascinations of arbitrary authority, but to strengthen his throne with the support of a religion which had astonished the world by its power of resistance. And I have shown you that pillar before, haven't I? You've seen that pillar before in Istanbul? If you go to Istanbul again, you need to see it. It is an amazing pillar. It's much shorter than it was initially, but this pillar was there when Constantine opened up his city and, and dedicated it in 331 uh, AD, I think it was. Then he had a statue of himself, a huge statue of himself on the top of the pillar. But Constantine there looked like Apollo, looked like the god Apollo. So there was a continuity with the past, and then there was, you know, Christian, Christianity, because his mother had been to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, she had found the nails that had been used for the crucifixion of Jesus. And those nails were put into the head of, of this statue of Constantine. So there are other things too that both for continuity and so on. But, but let's just say that Constantine had a conversion to Jesus, but he had absolutely no understanding of the kind of authority the Jesus of the New Testament wields. I think we can say that categorically, that they are on completely different pages in that respect. Now, a couple of other things here just to constitute, an how do you constitute an accountable authority? Well, you can only, you also do it in part by, by, uh, by having hierarchy. 
And this this uh, quotation here is from uh, Ignatius of Antioch, who wrote a letter to the Smyrnians. Uh, he wrote several letters, and he's a very early Christian person, uh, Christian leader in the city of Antioch, which was, uh, was uh, of course, very central in the book of Acts. Uh, and here is what he is saying, so now you can uh, interpret it after we've read it. No one is to do anything with reference to the church without the bishop. That Eucharist is to be considered valid, which is celebrated by the bishop or by a person he permits to celebrate. Wherever the bishop appears, there the assembly is to be. Apart from the bishop, it is not lawful to baptize or to hold the sacred meal. What do you hear him say? Well, you're, you're seeing a figure of authority emerge in the church. It's quite interesting to say, see that it emer emerges in Antioch, because Antioch is thought to be the church where the, where the Gospel of Matthew is situated. You know, if, uh, when, people try, when scholars try to locate these Gospels in various church communities, they, they generally tend to locate Matthew in Antioch. And Matthew says, what about authority? Matthew is, is very uh, is, uh, big on, on, on that subject. You should not call anyone rabbi. You should not call anyone master be, because you have one master and you are all brothers. There is an explicit non-hierarchical non con construct of authority in the Gospel of Matthew. And here in Antioch, we hear not long after the Gospel of Matthew has been written, we hear Ignatius of Antioch saying, in this church we have hierarchy, and you can only do things when it's authorized by the bishop. And in some ways, the bishop, the bishop by himself, becomes the embodiment of church. You know, you see the bishop, there is the church. You see, you see that? You see the emergence of hierarchy, and this is long before Constantine. This, uh, this is 200 years before Constantine. So already within churches, within communities in the church, you are seeing the emergence of the old notion, the Old Testament notion of priesthood, where you have, because you have, you have uh, that kind of structure in the, in the Old Testament. But Jesus seems to throw it open, doesn't he? In the Gospel of John, he seem, seems to throw it open when he... When he, he uh, he sort of empowers everybody. So the notion of the Protestant notion of the priesthood of all believers is a is a is a biblical notion. It is uh, it is well well established in the, in the New Testament. So this um, girl on the left there is my daughter. <laughs> uh, I I put in another picture in your handout, but then I looked uh, for this one, and the hand you see on her shoulder is my hand. So I have edited the picture <laughs> very, very, uh, uh, what should I say, sensitive to you. So you didn't, uh, so, but you can see uh, my head uh, just barely in the corner there. The shape of unaccountable authority. We could probably do more than, than I am doing here. And then I will explain why I put my daughter Lynn into, into the picture in a moment. But first you have a, a legacy, you have a historical legacy in the Roman Empire. You have an imperial legacy and an imperial mindset. And an imperator is a ruler who is answerable to none. See, he doesn't. 
there is not accountability. It is structured as, you know, which way does an, isn't there accountability? Uh, uh, so here you have, you have, uh, you have the top, and here you have the bottom. And who is accountable to whom? Where does accountability go? Well, so there is no, you know, the person, the, the, you are accountable to the emperor. The emperor is not accountable to you. You know, that is the way the authority is structured. That is, that is uh, the way the imperial system has worked. <clears throat> then, number two, you also have, as a shape of, of an accountable authority, a hierarchical, a hierarchical structure. Just so we know what we're trying to say here, that, that, that these people, the people at the bottom, they have not much say over what happens at the top. You see that? You know, there is imperial, which is constitutionally unaccountable, and there is hierarchy, which, which means that that yes, there might be there might be other sort of uh, la uh, there might be other levels here, but but the bottom has not very much influence of what happens at the top. <clears throat> now, the Adventist Church is the Adventist Church hierarchical, or is it uh, not hi non hierarchical? <laughs> Well, this sounded like Babylon to me. <laughs> that was confi conf conf let's do let's do both. Let's let's do on paper. Is it hierarchical on paper? Well, well, almost, almost. So, what would you say? Is it hierarchical on 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 paper too? In its in its constitution, my 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 hunch, my view has been that the Adventist Church is on paper uh, accountable, has accountable authority about up to the union level, and above the union level, on pa even on even on paper, it is very hard to 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 see accountability there. So the, then, even on paper, it tends more and more toward toward being. Uh, uh, being uh, a hierarchical structure in practice, I'm not going to disagree with anyone who says that in practice it tends to be uh, hierarchical and and quite unaccountable. But uh, let's not say that too loud. On the conference level, I would say there is quite a, quite uh, you ca you can change things on the conference level. I I have been wondering how some division presidents get reelected. Uh, you know, in in areas that I that I am I am aware of, I just don't understand how they get reelected. I don't think they should have been, but but they do get reelected, and it seems to me that must be because because the mechanisms for accountability aren't very good. So so, but we could easily get bogged down in this topic. So <laughs> so let's just do uh, uh, the other the three or four points I have here: fraternity. Authority, the shape of an accountable authority as fraternity. I would say that <clears throat> that the Roman Catholic Church is particularly vulnerable on that one. 
because you have a male-only fraternity, and you have celibacy too, celibacy too, which in some ways reinforces the 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 problem because because it makes you more vulnerable, socially vulnerable. Uh, I'm not talking about living as a single person. I'm talking about celibacy as policy, that there is a certain that you are you are structured in a certain way that a fraternity will tend to to be closed it will tend to be sequestered from from uh, from uh, uh, the rest of society uh, patronage what is that again we said it last time but we need to do it again so you do a favor for me and i and you can count on me to vote your way uh, the power structure it's not like there is only one person here there there are more persons this is the bottom again there is there is a there is a group of people here but they are kind of internally uh, you know sort of rotating among themselves so you might they they the person here appoints some of the people just below him I, I mentioned Syria as a case in point, the, 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 what is going on in Syria today. Because there is a minority group in Syria that wields power, but it needs a power base that is somewhat beyond its own narrow sort of sect. So you give privileges to some people in this system, and they in turn reward you by keeping you, you know, in good shape. That is what patronage is. And patronage does not include the people on the bottom. It is a power structure that excludes the ones on the bottom. And then you might also have the notion of infallibility. Well, what's the point of putting my daughter into this? Because she would be against all of them. (laughs) The point is that my daughter, Lynn, she did her PhD at Yale University in theology, and she wrote on Trinitarian theology. And I thought at first, this is going, oh my, why would you do this to yourself? You know, this is not going to to, uh, to strike any sort of, uh, you know, contemporary relevant issue. She critiqued the Trinitarian theologies of the two leading Trinitarians in our time, uh, a Roman Catholic by the name of Hans Urs von Balthasar, and a Protestant by the name of Wolfhard Pannenberg, a German. Both of them have, are in a German context. One is a Catholic, one is a, a Protestant. And the two things that she did uh, was to take, <coughs> looking at the Trinity, she says that there is a bias in, in both of these Trinitarian theologies, that they both think about, they, they think of the Godhead as hierarchical. So, who is in charge? The Father. And the Son and the Spirit, they are under the Father. So, that, you know, there are various ways, and the terminology of this is daunting. So don't, let's not get into the specific terminology. But there is a hierarchical structure within the Trinity. The Father is on top. That's how reality is, 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 is constituted up to God. And then the other part of it is that what sort of gender is God? God is a man. God is male, you know. So my daughter's critique, and I am quite uh, awed by what she has done because she took on these these uh, leading uh, leading people. Her critique is to say that there is a non-hierarchical reality in the Trinity. The divine reality is not that sort of a 
authority where you have the Father and the Son and the Spirit. But you have the Father and the Son and the Spirit in a, in a non-hierarchical relationship to each other. How about that? And then, what is the gender? Well, God is not a man. You know, is, is, you know, is God a man? Is he male? <laughs> you know, male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So, God, God in his own. So, at least you need to attenuate somewhat the maleness of, 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 of God. So, you know, God, because God has, has everything, you know, all, all human reality that you can see, male and female, must in some ways, you know, be, be a reflection of what God is. So, again, you know, why are Adventists squirming so much about, you know, women in ministry and other things? Well, partly is because our, our theology, right down to, to what God, who, who and what God is seems to be, be, be uh, indebted, seems to be sort of, seems to be, be uh, bear the imprint of these, uh, these things. So, anyway, um, if she comes to visit once, I'll try to make her share some of her thoughts with us because she can do it very well. In the church, then, the structure of unaccountable authority, such as this one, this is Pope Gregory VII, who is a kind of a go-to person because you cannot fault him for not saying what he means very clearly. What is he saying? Don't read, uh, read these other ones when you have time because they all have something to do with unaccountability. But how about this one? That he himself may be judged by no one. Is that accountability or is it unaccountability? Is that a declaration of saying, sort of structuring yourself as unaccountable authority that he himself can be judged by no one? Well, who, will, who does he think will judge him? Well, God, you know. So he thinks there is accountability to God. But accountability, the notion of Non, no account, accountability here, that he himself may be judged by no one. And the notion of infallibility, they travel together. They are usually traveling on the same bus or in the same wagon on the train. Because this is the claim of that the Roman church has never erred, nor will it err to all eternity, the scripture bearing witness. Well, you know, accountability is is not exactly the high or high on that list. <clears throat> the Inquisition in the in the twelfth thirteen in the thirteenth century and in the in the Spanish Inquisition in the fifteenth century. Uh, comment on, 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 on this anyone now that I have spoken for a while let, let me hear some comments on this statement. Let's read it. Inverse an impossible burden of proof and that the Inquisition did not allow defendants to confront or, or often even to know the names of their accusers. I've taken this from, from um, uh, uh, what's his first name? Norman Cantor. Norman Cantor is, a, is an American medievalist. He has written many books, and this one is from his book, Civil, The Civilization of the Middle Ages. And he is 
of, to, to my liking, offensively lenient on the Inquisition. I think he is way, way too lenient. You know, what? why is he not seeing that this is much worse than he is making it out to be? But I decided, well, let him speak. Uh, let him just say at least one thing here. Uh, the Inquisition did not allow defendants to confront or even to know the names of their accusers. It happens again in the French Revolution. It happens again in the Holocaust. It, and it happens to some extent in, 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 in various policies of, 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 of detention today, secret detentions today. And, and what sort of burden of proof do you have in this kind of system? What is an inverse burden of proof? You have to prove yourself innocent. And now in the, in the right sort of relationship there, you're supposed, you have the presumption of innocence until proven guilty, don't you? And, and, and here, can you prove yourself innocent? It's not easy to prove. You know, sort of positive, uh, positive uh, proof like that is not easy to do. Uh, so, and it is an impossible burden of proof because you are accused and then if you do not admit that you are if you do not admit to the crime for which you are accused what do, what do, will they do to you they will torture you and when they have tortured you for a while you will you will admit it so that's an impossible burden of proof that is that is really quite quite cruel isn't it to 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 have that so we're seeing again a sort of uh, you know authority aspect here that is not very attractive. High tide of arbitrary authority. I'll give you the reference for this, but this, uh, I hope you can make out what is going on here. This man is tied to a ladder of sorts, and they are pouring water into his mouth. This is the Spanish Inquisition. This is the Spanish Inquisition. When the rack did not produce the desired result, the rack was what we saw in the previous slide. That's the rack. When the rack did not produce the desired result, the churchman turned to the water torture. I said in another audience here that they had an idea about hydrotherapy in those days. <laughs> that was of a different kind, but it was intended to, to cure uh, certain things in these people. In this hideous remedy, the prisoner was tied to a ladder that was sloped downward so that the head was lower than the feet. The head was held fast in position by a metal band. The mouth was forced open with a metal piece and a cloth placed over the mouth. Then a pitcher of water was brought and water poured over the cloth, which each, with each swallow the cloth was drawn deeper into the throat until in gagging and choking the victim nearly, until in gagging and choking the victim nearly asphyxiated. The terror of suffocation was extreme and the process was repeated endlessly, bloating the body grotesquely until the victim was ready to confess. James Reston Jr. is the author of this book. James Reston Sr. used to be a very respected columnist in the New York Times. Uh, I, I have not followed the career of his, his son. I think this must be his son. Dogs of God. This is a, a book that I think, I think is a good book. Very, I, I, uh, it's a trustworthy. That is the Spanish Inquisition. The Spanish Inquisition was the inventor of what is now called waterboarding. And this is another type of, 
of uh, hydrotherapy where you just do it do it by by uh, you know putting them under water till they think they will die what's the point well you know you see again uh, when you read in this book that the some of them some of the primary victims of this type of of author- this type of uh, investigation uh, during the Middle Ages were the Jews, because the Jews were always under pressure to convert. So they wanted to, the Jews to convert, and they often uh, put them under severe political pressure or, you know, even torture. But then they thought that the Jews had not been sincere in their conversion. So you had converted, but maybe you weren't sincere. Maybe you still light the, lit a candle for Sabbath, you know, suspicions like that. So you put these people under torture and made them admit that they had been converted insincerely. But how can you get yourself out of that kind of predicament? Because you did convert. But then they said, well, that wasn't good enough. Maybe you converted insincerely. And then they torture you. To So what are you going to do under torture except to say that you admit that you, you know, you have... You, the, the authority has all the cards and you have absolutely no cards to play in this kind of a structure. I am su- suggesting here, and you will not be surprised by this, that there has been a reacceptance of unaccountable authority in our time. And I'm asking here, I don't mean to be, no, to be sort of, sort of uh, uh, what, you, what do you call that? Uh, you know, sort of irreverent, but <coughs> I will... Uh, say it in, in, in respectfully, did the U.S. and the U.S. president understand that he was talking to a power constitutionally opposed to the separation of church and state? What do I mean? Isn't, is that true? Is it true to say that the Roman Catholic Church is opposed to the separation of church and state? Well, it is, it is and it isn't. It is and it isn't. Because there are many leading you know, constitutional thinkers in the Catholic Church in the U.S. that are fully and I say believably in agreement with the separation of the church, of church and state in the U.S. But the Pope, the person to whom President Reagan is talking here, he has constituted his own state. You know, the the the, the reality of non-separation here goes to the heart of the matter that the church is a state see so th- there is a there is incoherence there is definitely especially post vatican 2 there is definitely leading uh, roman catholics saying we believe in freedom of religion we believe in separation of church and state and i think they they mean it credibly but it seems to me that they have not seen that their own reality, their own church reality, is that the church is constituted as a state. And my hunch is that, is that he doesn't see it either, that he just doesn't relate to the person to whom he is speaking as someone who, who in a profound way, in a profound way, does not share his American values. Did the U.S. president understand that the partner in conversation was and is committed to unaccountable authority. I think that is, that is a fair, fair question because I think that is true, that the Roman Catholic Church is not, is not committed to accountable authority. It really cannot be because it has in its own history uh, uh, sort of uh, 
sort of produced or, or, or advocated the ideology of unaccountability. I would like to read a couple of statements here. Uh, <clears throat> I was present when Jose Maria Escrivá, when he was beatified in the 90s, I was in Florence, and I just saw that there were posters all over Florence that he was going to be beatified. He is the founder of the Catholic uh, uh, group uh, Opus Dei. Opus Dei is a many Adventists who are critical of the Catholic Church. They say, well, there is a lot, you know, Jesuits and so on. But the Jesuits are not very loyal to the hierarchy of the Catholic Church today. The Jesuits are in some ways the liberals of Catholicism. Opus Dei are the conservatives. Oh, this is the founder, Spanish, uh, Spanish uh, cleric, who founded Opus Dei. And here is a couple of statements from Opus Dei. Obey as an instrument obeys in the hands of an artist, not stopping to consider the reasons for what it is doing, being sure that you will never be directed to do anything that is not good for the glory of God. Read the other statements that I have put in there in your handout. This person was canonized in 2002. He, he was first beatified, canonized, very shortly after his life, showing to me the kind of ideal. What is the, the ideal that the church wishes to pr promote in terms of, of authority? And you could ask the same question within Adventism. What, is the, what sort of winds are blowing? What is the ideal that we would like to have in our church when it comes to accountability? So I will have to skip that. And then uh, I've just mentioned the, the, the uh, sex scandals. The sex scandals in the Catholic Church are atrocious, of course. It's a very, very, very serious and a very sad problem. But it is a problem that is very much related to lack of accountability, lack of transparency, you know, lack of access, that the church meant to handle these things internally. The church meant to handle it pastorally. They did not want to go to the police, because if you report your priest to the police, what then? Then you are saying, I am accountable to another authority than myself. You see, then you are sort of violating the notion of an accountable authority. And it has been quite humiliating for the Catholic Church to discover that society intends to hold the church accountable and has no plans of, 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 of accepting that you handle this sort of, uh, sort of uh, pers uh, personally. This person here who is blessed by the Pope in 2004 is the founder of the Legionaries of Christ, which is another in some ways, an, another rightist uh, group within modern Catholicism, idealized by the Vatican, just like Opus Dei is idea, idealized by the Vatican for their commitment to hierarchical structures, submission on the part of the members, unaccountable authority, and you name it. So I could have said more about it. It's quite a tedious subject. I want to read this before we end. <coughs> I'm sorry I'm not getting to one of the points I would have liked to make today, but but um, you can, uh, maybe we'll have a chance to talk about it uh, some other time. Uh, Frank McCourt, when I look back on my childhood, I wondered how I survived it all. It was, of course, a miserable childhood. The happy childhood is hardly worth your while. Worse than the ordinary miserable childhood is the miserable Irish childhood. And worse yet is the miserable Irish Catholic childhood. 
the poverty, the shiftless, loquacious, alcoholic father, the pious, defeated mother, moaning by the fire, pompous priests, bullying schoolmasters, the English and the terrible things they did to us, and so on. I don't think he means it, you know, in a, in a joking way. There are terrible childhoods. There are terrible religious childhoods. Terrible childhoods, authoritarian childhoods. You know, I think some of us in, as Adventists have also experienced our share of less than perfect childhoods. My father was a was a a, a, a person who did not understand uh, account, accountable authority or, or wield it in a in 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 a in a meaningful way. So let's just end by saying that the Jesus of the New Testament, the God of the Bible, believes in accountability. Has in some ways opened opened his whole project up to us. And whatever confidence we have in it will be a confidence that can be based on, on, on God's commitment to wield only accountable authority.